0: Last week, I argued that origin stories are really, really important. And I suggested that the origin story that the average person in America has is one of evolutionary theory. And that origin story, I think, unconsciously leads people to relate to one another and to think about humanity and the world in certain ways that are negative. Okay, so so I made the argument that if you think of the origin of humanity and your origin in terms of evolution from an animal species, and the greatest good in that process is your development, survival of the species or something like that. Uh, I don't know what's honking there. That's a, that is a car that has not evolved well, okay? <laughs> There's a bug in the system in that one. But, but if that's your origin story, it influences your end time story. What's our purpose? Where are we headed? Where do we find meaning? And so then I tried to point out that if we're going to think about race and authority, and we'll add to this sexuality in a way that's deeply meaningful, we need a different origin story. Now, the ancient Egyptian origin story was one of a... a God's creating things out of violence and sexual perversion. And so you think of one origin story, The a new, uh, I won't be able to pron- pronounce it well here because I'm not looking at it, but, but the, there's a story where Marduk creates the world by killing a goddess, Tiamut, and cutting her in half. Okay, in in the you know so there are all of these really violent and then very perverse versions of origin stories that these ancient Mesopotamian cultures had. When Moses is writing Genesis, he's writing to set the record straight. And so I also try to make the point that we have to read Genesis one through eleven in the whole Bible, trying to hear it in terms of what the author is trying to say. This means that we need to set aside some of our questions and some of our later systematic theology categories as we read Genesis and as we try to understand our origin story. This is because the cultural river that Moses was in and Egypt was in and Israel was in is different than the cultural river we are in. Okay, so so he had no category for some of the questions we're asking and for some of the things we're trying to see in the text. So instead, we need to try to hear it as Israel would have heard it and as Moses would have worked to write it. Um, were there questions on those things from last week or anything I've said up to this point? Okay. So, then I gave us a a theological foundation that we have to have as we try to understand what the Bible teaches about humanity. And that theological foundation is that God created humanity as his image bearers in covenant relationship with him and with one another. So, let me briefly review these sections God created, God created humanity as his image bearers, and then we'll get into new material. God created humanity as his image bearers in covenant relationship with him and one another. So God created humanity. Um, I was listening to someone preaching through Genesis this week, and he started out by saying that this phrase, in the beginning, implies that there will be an ending. Okay, so, so when we read this phrase, in the beginning implies that there's a purpose or an end, there's something that's, that's going to finish the story. And if we read just the book of Genesis, Genesis begins with the creation of people in the garden, blessed, and it ends in Egypt with someone in a coffin. Okay, so, so as we read Genesis, we have to have these things in our mind as we try to figure out who we are. It starts good, it ends with a dead guy in a coffin. That guy's Joseph, okay? And, and out of a, a good land, in a bad land, Okay. So, so we hear in the beginning, in this ancient Near Eastern context where other gods are being dethroned and the creator God is being exalted on the throne. Now, as we read this story, um, well, as we go here, I should just say, I'm going to throw in some details that may not seem totally relevant to a conversation on race and authority. But what I th- what I'm trying to do is give you a biblical worldview in a narrative that you can hear these things in so that when you hear propositions and other narratives, you're going to be able to detect it more readily and better. And you're going to tie yourself to what's actually in the Bible instead of being distracted by other concerns. Okay. Some of the concerns that we can be distracted by come up when we start to read the Bible in Genesis in particular outside of Moses's intended authorship in in the Israelite way of thinking, okay? So we can lose focus on the main purpose of these texts when we start to do apologetics for the historical accuracy of these texts um, instead of focusing on the events discussed. So as I talk about Genesis here, I will talk about it in a way that I think is faithful to what Moses is communicating in his cultural world that might seem to diminish things like, um, you know, creation ex nihilo, uh, 24-hour days, these sort of things. This is simply because Moses isn't focusing on these things, and I want us to see what's going on here. So if you hear something that strikes you as unfamiliar, that's okay. All right, it's just hearing it in, in this other cultural stream I think we can look at other texts of Scripture in the way the Bible's been received. You know, you have guys like Philo who are saying it didn't take God seven days to create the world. He just spoke and it was. Um, We we have the New Testament witness. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Word was God. Nothing existed that wasn't created by him. And we don't get all of these seven-day hour details. And I think that's because the Bible doesn't want us to spend time losing the meaning of the, the text, trying to argue with evolutionists about how long it would take for something to develop. We don't care about that when we're reading Genesis, at least not here. There, there's place for those discussions, but, but I think if, if you read Genesis and all you want to do is listen to Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis thing, you're gonna miss the message of Genesis and you're going to have an origin story that you're spending more time defending than actually living out. Okay, so all of that to say, try to hear what I'm saying in terms of the the text and its immediate context, not the debate between creationists and evolutionists that gets messy. Instead, blow all of that up and say evolution as an origin story doesn't work because God is the creator. In the beginning, God created. No other origin story works. So in the same way that Moses can just dethrone every other deity that the Israelites have heard are responsible for creation, we can dethrone the whole conversation of evolution without trying to get into the messy particular details of each one and lose sight of the creator God while we talk about how long a day would have been reckoned by someone in Israel. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Again, this is shaping, I think, a worldview sensation that will work in our favor as we move through the rest of of the Bible. Okay. Okay. I, I mentioned that then that God is creator, every other God is dethroned, but God created humanity as the crown of creation in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So God said, let us make man in our image. And then God churns, and I argued that our there refers to this divine counsel that would have been in the mind of the, the Israelites here in that God dethroned the divine council. By instead of allowing any human to reflect the image of any other power or deity or angelic being, God made man in his image, male and female. And so humans are wholly possessed by God and wholly intended to reflect God. Consequently, then humans should worship God alone. No other God, no other power deserves the worship of humanity because God dethroned all other conceptions of of power and deities in those who call for worship. I think that we should respond to this by saying then, if I am in God's image, then I should give myself wholly to him and I should root all of my purpose and identity in God alone. Now, this idea of someone... being in the image of God is not something new to the Bible, okay? Moses is speaking in this cultural world. This idea of images of God were prevalent really in three different categories. One category is an image of God that would be set up in a temple, okay? And what the idea is that this image, this statue, conveyed and mediated the presence of that particular God, Okay? So it didn't matter whether or not that statue looked like this God precisely. You know, in fact, if you look at some of these ancient statues, they're really bizarre. And and the idea isn't necessarily that they physically reflect it, but, but there's this communication of the core of who that God is and of that God's presence in the temple. Okay, so as a side note here, when we talk about the image of God and us as the image of God, we're not talking about our physical bodies per se. And so I've seen a few news articles recently where churches are being pointed out as saying we can't wear masks because we're physically, the, the image of God in a, a covering covers up that image. And so it's breaking God's purpose for us. Well, newsflash, you also put on clothes today, okay? So, so where it, that, that's a bad argument and not helpful. But, but the image of, and that's why a male God is sometimes pictured in female statues or or statues with female body parts. Okay. So, so the physical body has less to do with it. It's more of this embodiment in terms of representation of that divine presence. So that's one concept of the divine image in the ancient world. The second concept of the divine image in the ancient world is in terms of a king or a ruler being called the image of the god. Okay, so this would be someone like Pharaoh or others. And so in these accounts, the only people who are designated as the image of our God are are these select few rulers. Immediately in contrast to that, in the Bible, every human, all of humanity is made in God's image, both individually and collectively. So let me give you an analogy to understand this. We are the body of Christ. Christ. We're individually united to Christ, yes, but it's only really fully collectively that we are the body of Christ. You and I are each the image of God, but it's really, it comes to its most vibrant, full display in a collective whole. And, and so that's why I think it emphasizes men and women. God created man in the image of God, and that's just a word for humanity. Adam. And that's a, a play on words. Adama is ground. So we, sh- we, we might want to say more properly, God created earthlings in his image, male and female, he created them. Okay. And so there's this idea of all of humanity better represents as an image, God. Okay. And, and again, this is distinct because in the ancient Near East, really only the kings would be identified as the image of a God, and it brought with it these ideas of rulership and sonship. So these kings would be called a son of a God, okay? And, and they would rule on that God's behalf. So as a vice regent. So when we start to talk about humanity as God's image, those same ideas are there. That's why Adam is later called a son of God. That's why this is carried forward in Exodus, where God fathers Israel, his firstborn son. So this sonship language then pervades the rest of scripture. So does this ruling language. So God created man in his image so that they would rule. They'd have dominion over everything that moved on the earth, right? Now in the Hebrew words, this is for Steve, our Hebrew guy, and for me because I enjoy it. We have Salem and Demuth. Demuth is likeness. Salem is image, and in their Akkadian cognates, there are these correlations of obedient sonship, okay? This idea of sonship again, and and then of servant kingship. So the image of the God was a king who acted as a servant for the God who ruled on his behalf, okay? So in the biblical story, all of humanity is endowed with this royal Priestly mediating the image of God status. Okay? And so the Bible's origin story is very, very different. Furthermore, as we'll get into in a moment, that status of the image of a God was talked about in covenantal terms. And so sometimes this deity would articulate a direct covenant that's written out, that we have records of with this king. Other times it's not there, but this kinship relationship is to be understood in covenantal terms. So then as one guy writes, the image of God in the Old Testament is therefore seen as a status given by God. So in conferring the status, God identifies people with him. In so doing, he is revealing the identity that humans should adopt if they want to conceive of themselves in a way that will allow them to properly understand how they should live in order to serve the purpose for which God has created them. People can choose to identify as the image of God or not, but their choice does not change their status. So if you and I want to be able to operate in this world as God intended for us to operate, we need to identify ourselves fundamentally as God's image bearers. So I am trying to say that if you are finding your identity in anything else other than as God's image bearer, then you are going to adopt purposes that work against the purposes that God created you for. And if you find your ultimate meaning or even a large amount of your meaning in something other than your identity and status as an image bearer, you're going to start to work towards ends that will probably contradict that status and purpose and that are going to leave you feeling empty and shallow. Whereas if you adopt God's purposes for his image bearers, I think you're going to feel vibrant and full. That is the fullness of life. Okay? So God created his... Image bearers to reflect Him as the ultimate source of life. And so for us to engage in life in a meaningful way, I think we will do that best by identifying as God's image bearers. This means then that not only should we identify ourselves in this way, but also we should look at every other person we encounter as one of God's image bearers as well. So when you evaluate a person and you sum up who they are, If you're looking at them and and placing their identity in something other than the status is an image bearer of God, I think you will fail to treat them as God intends for you to treat them. And because every human is made in this way, we can stop asking questions like, who is the image of God? Or where's the image of God found? Or does that person have God's image? Every person is God's image. And so if you are looking at other people and assigning them value outside of their status as an image bearer based on something like skin color or gender or ability or disability, you need to stop, okay? If you are looking at someone and identifying them primarily in terms of an external feature or a functional capacity, that needs to end because that's not how God is identifying them. So to make this very practical, if you are talking and saying things like, I am so glad that God made me a white person, or I'm so glad that I'm an American, or I'm so thankful that I'm a man and not a woman, that's at best a backhanded compliment to God. And at worst, it's a diminutive diminutive view of your fellow image bearers. And so you shouldn't be saying things like that. Okay? Okay. That, that's bad. Um, so to put this in, in context, if, if you are with your spouse hanging out with another couple and um, maybe, maybe that guy's wife had this kind of faux pas, she does something not good or kosher or something and you look over at your wife in the presence of all of them and say, I'm so glad I married you and not her. What, what is that communicating about this person's value? bad, right? And, and while we might just be thinking we're just being grateful, if we're talking in that way, we are not being grateful for what God is doing throughout humanity in, in their redemption and in their progressive, those who come into Christ, who progressively bear his image more brightly. And, and we're sort of backhanded complimenting God in saying, this part of your creation is good. The, the others aren't so good. Okay. All right. Let's pause here for questions, comments. Hopefully that makes sense. We'll get into the New Testament soundings on this, but I think regardless of who you interact with, your first thought should be, I am speaking to and with an image bearer of God, and they deserve the dignity that, that should be afforded God's image. This is because, and I'll elaborate here more and then pause for questions, in, in the ancient world, even as you read the Bible, the, the image is not the God, but it is very closely connected to the thing it represents, so much so that an affront to the image is an affront to the, the thing the image represents. So, so think of the story in Daniel. A statue is built. Everyone is supposed to worship it, bow down to it. If someone doesn't bow down to that statue, they're essentially revolting the, the person behind the statue and, and those guys end up in a bad spot, right and and so if you affront God's image bearer, you're affronting God himself okay Com- comments, questions before I make a final statement on views of humanity and origin stories i I think Jesus is probably speaking in terms that equate himself to God there and that recall things like in the Proverbs and other places where if you despise a rich or a poor person, you're despising God who made them. Um, But then as we read forward into the New Testament, I think we read forward and backward, and, and we say that those who are connected to Christ are his body. Okay, so there's this metaphorical language, and so anything that's done to one of Christ's people is done to Christ as well. So this is why when Saul is persecuting people, and he hears the voice of Christ from heaven, Christ says, why are you persecuting me? It's because in our union with Christ, we're so identified with him that whatever we do to another Christian, it's as if we're doing it to Christ. If you recall back to 1 Corinthians, as I preached through that, there were multiple times where where Paul said, if you are sinning in this way, you're sinning against Christ. Okay, so if you sin against a body, you sin against Christ. So think 1 Corinthians 6 with the sin with a cult prostitute or um, causing someone to think you can worship multiple gods because they're eating this meat sacrificed to idols. Well, if you sin against your brother, you're really sinning against me. Okay, other questions here? Okay, so let me emphasize the views of humanity that come out of origin stories. In the ancient Near East so this Mesopotamian culture in Egypt as well, the identity of people could be described as byproducts of gods in mundane materials. Whether it's a god that's cut in half or some other violent act or sexual perverse act, humans are just byproducts of the gods. Their status is as slaves. So humans were made to serve the gods, okay? Their function was to bring order to the universe by serving the needs of the gods, Um, Their whole purpose in life then really was to provide for the needs of the gods. And their future expectation was just survival of this person as a disembodied soul in the netherworld. Okay, So that's sort of what this ancient Near Eastern perspective on humanity is. In our modern secular view, according to our origin story of evolution, the identity of humans could be described as evolved primates. Okay, evolved animals. The status is really just indiscernible from the rest of the parts of the universe. Um, you know, we're, we're made to serve the earth just as much as the earth is made to serve us. And sometimes one is going to take greater pri- priority over the other. The purpose or, or the function of humans then is just to propagate, to evolve, and to survive. Okay, and, and then the, the purpose that works out of that function is just the continued existence and advancement of a species. The future expectation then, according to this origin story, is that nothing survives. It's just, a, it's, there's an entropy here. Discourse on the end. It's just working towards chaos. From uh, out of chaos we came, into chaos we will go, is sort of the mindset. Okay? So then when we turn to the Old Testament foundational anthropology, human identity is described in terms of the image of God. There's a status is a priestly king. There's a function to bring order to the universe as priests, as you maintain and expand the sacred space of the garden, particularly through the multiplication of more image bearers. The purpose is to keep covenant and to preserve the relational presence of God with his people. And there's a future expectation of the survival of, of, of the person in, in the netherworld, in this great beyond, we don't, you know, we don't know what it is, but we know there will be the survival of the person as they're joining the community of the ancestors. So that's why there's language of, and he went to be with his fathers, right? And so there's this continued existence in, in the next phase. And then as the New Testament develops this, it gives humans, particularly those who have come to faith in Christ, an identity as in Christ, connected to him. We have, again, the continuation of that status as a priestly king, a vice regent, a kingdom of priests who have a function of bringing order to the world by means of the Great Commission. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with images of Christ as they receive the gospel. The purpose then is to participate in the kingdom of God as it is expanding over the planet as a priest bearing Christ to the world and living in the world God's way with a future expectation of new creation where the person survives in a resurrected body. So this is a very different origin story with a very different eschatology and I think it's a much better one. And so if we want to confront racism and sexism and and abuse of authority, the way to do it is to, by giving people a new origin story, saying this is where you find your identity and your future. I think we've applied this enough here in, in our response, but I think what a couple last comments here is we think about authority in this conversation. When we, when we hear the Bible's origin story in eschatology and we live in this world and we get the sense that something's not right, as those who have been given authority as a representative of God, we should work to remedy the situation in as much as possible. We know full remedy won't come till the new creation, but we should work to identify problems and bring them into harmony with the purpose that God has given to humans in the universe. And so, When we think about authority, this should be the metric by which we judge a good authority. The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glistening of rain on sprouting grass. So when there's authority that gives life, like the sun shining and and grass growing, that's the metric by which we detect they the good exercise of authority is by the fruitfulness that covers the earth that results from it. And so when we come across authority that does the opposite of that, that results in death, in chaos, in darkness, we should say there's something wrong with this authority. Authority isn't the problem. It's the way it's being worked out. So we've got to figure out how do we address this and make it better. And we know, based on the, the history of even the Davidic line in the Bible, that even the best of authorities are going to fail. That doesn't mean we overthrow all authority, whether it's governmental or parental or societal. We, we don't overthrow authority. What we do is we work to incrementally bring that authority back into its purpose and direction as given by God. That is not the message that we're hearing in our world. Whether it's in the classroom where teachers shouldn't teach, kids should discuss, or whether it's in a police department where police shouldn't regulate the the outworking of good and wrong, but they should be defunded, or whether it's in a family where parents shouldn't have authority over their children, this idea of authority is being overthrown. Well, that's not the right way to do it because it just further removes you from the Bible's story of humanity. All right, we've got to move on. I think I wanted to review at length here in part because we, we didn't capture the recording last time and we're expanding the vision for the class. The rest of the Bible classes this year are going to really be a theological anthropology. And so we'll talk about issues of race and authority, but also of, of gender and sexuality. This is partly because we have so many days where we're on our holiday, holiday schedule where we won't have Bible class. And, and this is such a broad topic, we thought it would be good just to soak in it a little bit longer. So let me move then to the second part of our first theological foundation, which is that God created humanity as his image bearers in covenant relationship with him and with one another. So God created humanity as his image bearers in covenant with him and with one another. Okay, so the the idea of covenant is really foreign to us. We often think in terms of a contract or something like that. You'll have to get that out of your mind because in the ancient Near East and throughout the Bible, there were covenants that were made between two parties that were not mere business contracts, but they served to create kinship. Okay, so a A contract that you make with your landlord, or like we're doing with trying to get this building, is one that carries very little obligations other than the product, whether it's the apartment that you rent, or the the deed on your house, or, or this building that we're trying to get. It's focused on a product that comes out of it. Now, covenants also include products that come out of this, I think, but it's not the focus the focus is on a relationship that's forged between two parties who enter into a covenant relationship. And and the relationship that comes out of this covenant is a family relationship. That relationship and these covenants are sometimes fully described using the, the word for covenant. So if you care, it's a Hebrew word, berit. Sometimes this word shows up when the covenant is put into place. Other times it doesn't but you can detect a covenant primarily in terms of the relationship that's forged, the obligations and the stipulations that surround this relationship in the text. Okay, so I, I want to work backwards a little bit here. When the Davidic covenant is made, God making a covenant with David, the word covenant doesn't appear. But there is this idea of God establishing David as his royal son. And this recalls, image of God language of what's going on there, this, this royal sonship, obedient sonship. Okay, well, we, we move backwards and we see covenants throughout the Old Testament with Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, there, there are a lot of divine covenants, but I want to argue that the first covenant is a covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve, with humanity in the garden, even though the word isn't there, I think we can detect it for a number of reasons. The first reason is that generally when a covenant is made, the, the language is used that a covenant was cut. So God cut a covenant with Abraham. So this is Karat barit, And it, it brings to mind that image that we, we see of God cutting these anim, you know, Abraham cutting these animals in half, God passing through them. And, and the idea is that there, there will be a, a curse on the one who breaks the covenant that is pictured in, in the cutting of these animals. It's really this self-imprecatory um, obligation that's taken on. If you break the covenant, you're as good as dead. Okay, and and um, so that language of cut co- a covenant is the the common language for making a covenant for the first time. But as covenants are made and covenant faithfulness is questioned on either sides of the parties, sometimes these covenants are talked about again in terms of upholding a covenant or establishing a covenant. The, the biblical language for this is hakim berit to uphold or establish a covenant. And so this sometimes happens when a covenantal party is wondering whether the other covenantal party is going to remain faithful. And so sometimes you have this language between God and Abraham, where God says, after he's cut the covenant, I will uphold my covenant w- with you. And it's just referring to the same covenant. Or when that covenantal party dies and their offspring is brought into the covenant, it's the same covenant. But then when God speaks to Isaac or Jacob, he'll say something like, I will uphold my covenant with you. So so whenever a new covenant is made, we we expect I will cut a covenant with you when a previous covenant is going to be reaffirmed or established. We expect that language, I'll establish or or uphold my covenant. Well, the first time we come across the Hebrew word for covenant, berit, in the Bible is in Genesis 6.18 when God is speaking to Noah and he says, I will uphold my covenant with you. Or depending on the translation, I will establish my covenant with you. Now that's confusing language because we can use the word establish as in like the establishment of something for the very first time, or you can talk about it in terms of someone who's becoming established. Well, they already existed and they had a presence, but now it's being fortified. Well, that's the way that I think God is using this in Genesis 6, 18, when he tells Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. I think what he's saying is that this covenantal relationship I've had with humanity from the days of Adam, I'm not going to depart from that. And the reason that God is using this language is because he's about to introduce something that will cause humans to question whether or not God will be faithful to his covenant with humanity. And the thing that's going to happen is the destruction of almost all of humanity. And the way it's described is as a decreation event. So everything that happens is taking apart God's good creation work so we can understand why this covenant with humanity is in question. So that's one argument for why I'm going to suggest that there's a covenant at creation. The second reason I'm going to suggest that there's a covenant at creation is that when we start reading that second creation account, starting in Genesis 2, 4, we see a shift from the designation of God is Elohim, just God, to Elohim. Elohim, Yahweh, or, or the Lord God, Lord all calves, is what you'll see in your English Bibles. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. And so everyone reading this text would have understood everything that was happening is God places Adam in, Adam in the garden and creates Eve from his side and gives them a commission and gives them restrictions of what they shouldn't do and obligations of what they should do. Everyone would have understood this in a covenantal context. Okay, in that covenantal context means there's a kinship here. There's a relationship till death do us part. And actually, the the curse of the covenant there is death. If If you violate the stipulation, don't eat of the tree in the garden, death will come. So there's this covenantal idea. And we'll talk about this next week as we talk about humans as covenant breakers using the language of Hosea 6, 6, and 7 as we talk about this, we'll understand why it is not arbitrary for God to demand that they not eat of the tree. And it's not an overreaction for God to assign death as the result of eating from the tree. This is just common covenantal language. This is the same thing we see in God's covenant with Israel. If you violate the obligations of this covenant, death is going to follow. Now, furthermore, I think that in this covenantal context in Genesis 2, as God has just finished putting man in the garden with obligations and stipulations, he makes it clear in Genesis 2.24 that Adam and Eve are together. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. And they become one flesh because both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. He gives a human covenantal context from the beginning in the garden as well. So there's family obligation between God and all humans, and there's family obligation between the only humans who exist. And so as we start to talk about our relationship to each other in marriage, it's a covenantal context, but I think that extends then because everyone who comes from Adam and Eve are in a covenantal context by virtue of being born into the family. Okay, so this is family language. And so we'll, what we'll start to see is that humans are covenant breakers with God and with one another, and they fail to treat one each other in covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. This is the language of covenant terminology, faithfulness and steadfast love. And so when we think about race and authority and gender and sexuality, it is all given in a covenantal context with family relationship between God and people and people In each other. So, as we respond to this, let me remind you of what I said last week. When God made Adam and Eve, He made them as people, and every one of their offspring is equally related to them. So, a Canaanite is just related to Adam and Eve as a Moabite and as an Israelite in every other ethnicity or nationality. And so when we start to look at other people, we have to start to think in terms of God's original creation intent, which is for us to be in covenantal relationship with any other image bearer that we encounter. And at times that covenantal relationship is heightened in marriage, but it's always a family relationship. And in this way, there's truth to those phrases that say something like, we're all God's children. Every person is one of God's children. And in this wider view of the creation of humanity, that's true. Now, we'll see that God's children, these covenant breakers say, I don't want you to be my dad anymore. And and they break covenant. And there's a way back into covenant. But, But as you and I look at someone else, if we start to treat them as someone who's not a family member, we're not treating them in the right way. Now, you might push back and say, but we know our family members really well. Go to a family reunion, and you've got to treat every one of those people like family. If you marry into a large family, and I did, and you go to a family reunion, you've got to treat every one of those people like family, even though you can't discern one piece of a genetic connection to them. And if you don't, you will be viewed as breaking steadfast love and faithfulness to this family unit. That's why it's so messy and awful when arguments break out over a holiday dinner. It's because it's this covenantal kinship that's broken. And that's why it's so awful when individuals look at other human beings and look at them as lesser or with less dignity or with less worth because of skin color or age or gender or ability or inability. It's breaking covenantal relationship that God has endowed to all people between one another. So as we end here, and I apologize for being two minutes over, if you'll give me one more minute. I want to ask you to consider this week, as you relate to other people, whether or not as you go forward, wherever your feet are planted, as an image bearer of God, are you bearing forth Christ to them? Are you representing God wherever you go, or are you representing your own aims and agendas? And wherever your feet are planted, are you relating to other image bearers whose feet are planted next to you as God's image, as his creation in covenant relationship with you? So I would call to mind then Micah 6:8, where we're instructed that what God requires of us is to act justly to love steadfast love, okay? Unfortunately, they take the Greek translation of the Old Testament and say, and to love mercy. But, but it's said steadfast love, to love steadfast love. So if you're going to act justly, it requires loving steadfast love, which is covenantal language, and to walk humbly with God. I'll pray that the Lord allows us to do that as a church and, and as individuals this week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for creating us as your family and in a family that expands the entire globe. And we pray that people everywhere would see themselves as your image bearers and that they would see that truly in Christ and that they would image forth Christ so that your glory would be spread across the planet. And wherever people are, others would know that there's a declaration that your presence is there and that land is yours and that we belong to you and should be possessed by you and should give our worship to you and to you alone. In Christ we pray, amen.